This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Today's talk on the Heart Sutra is a continuation of a series of talks and meditations we have been giving on the Heart Sutra throughout this year. <clears throat> the title of today's talk is Living Without Walls. The Bodhisattva path. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, good. The translation we're using for today is from the uh, the Heart Sutra translation and commentary by Red Pine, which is this little book. And uh, Red Pine has, uh, or Bill Porter, has translated numerous uh, Buddhist sutras. He, um, interestingly, he, uh, he divides the Heart Sutra up into four parts. So the first part he calls Prajnaparamita, which is really Avalokiteshvara, the, the Bodhisattva of compassion, uh, beginning to teach Shariputri, the disciple of the Buddha, about emptiness. In the second part, part two, he calls Habidharma in the light of Prajnaparamita is how Avalokiteshvara then deconstructs the Abhidharma teachings that were um, taught by various uh, Buddhist sects two, uh, three or four hundred years after the Buddha taught. Part three is the part we'll be focusing on primarily today. He calls the Bodhisattva path. And part four, he calls the womb of Buddhas, which is the last part of the Heart Sutra, where Avalokiteshvara encourages us to take refuge in Prajnaparamita, wisdom beyond wisdom, and gives us the mantra, Gate Gate Parigate Parasamgate Bodhisvaha. The Heart Sutra is a very challenging uh, sutra and, and very difficult to understand. And uh, I don't pretend to understand it fully. I'm just, I'll be talking, uh, the, uh, expressing my understanding as it stands this morning. It certainly pulls the rug out from our conventional reality. And, uh, and that in itself can be very, uh, quite a dizzying experience to have your uh, conventional reality pulled out from underneath you. And, um, but it, it also uh, points a way towards re-engaging with conventional reality in a way in which we will no longer be suffering. So I'll just read out the translation. Um, if you have your own copy there, just follow along with it. The Heart Sutra. So this is part one. The noble Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva 
while practicing the deep practice of Prashna Paramita, looked upon the five skandhas, and seeing they were empty of self-existence, said here, Shariputra, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Emptiness is not separate from form. Form is not separate from emptiness. Whatever is form is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness is form. The same holds for sensation and perception, memory and consciousness. Here, Shariputra, all dharmas are defined by emptiness, not birth or destruction, purity or defilement, completeness or deficiency. So that's the introduction, that's the part one. In part two is where the, uh, the sutra refers to various teachings of the, uh, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, which many of you would be familiar with, including the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, where in this section of the Heart Sutra, they are deconstructed. Um, so, therefore, Shariputra, in emptiness there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no memory, and no consciousness. No eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, and no mind. No shape, no sound, no smell, no taste, no feeling, and no thoughts. No element of perception from eye to conceptual consciousness. No causal leak, link from ignorance to old age and death. And no end of causal link from ignorance to old age and death. No suffering, no source, no relief, no path, no knowledge, no attainment and no non-attainment. Well, that's the end of the second part where it's a uh, negation of the uh, popular teachings of the time and to replace them with the alternative of Prashna Paramita. The, uh, the no ear, no tongue, all those kind of sections are referring to the sort of 18 different levels of experience that are identified in the Abhidharma teachings and um, the uh, no causal link is the notion of the 12 chains of causation uh, and the cycle of rebirth. And uh, no suffering, no source, no relief, no path is that's referring to the four noble truths. And no knowledge, no attainment and no non attainment is referring to the uh, realization of enlightenment or Nirvana. So the third part, the outlines the, the path of the Bodhisattva. Therefore, Shariputra, without attainment, Bodhisattvas take refuge in Prajna Paramita and live without walls of the mind. Without walls of the mind and thus without fears, they see through delusions and finally Nirvana. All Buddhas, past, present and future, also take refuge in Prajna Paramita and realize unexcelled perfect enlightenment. So that's the path of the Bodhisattva in a nutshell, the path that we're all walking. And then the final part of the Sutra, the womb of the Buddhas, the Prajna Paramita is often referred to as the mother of Buddhas. 
You should therefore know the great mantra of Prashna Paramita, the mantra of great magic, the unexcelled mantra, the mantra equal to the unequaled, which heals all suffering and is true, not false. The mantra in Prashna Paramita spoken thus, Gate Gate, Paragate, Parasangate, Udi Swaha. Paramita often being translated, or Prajna translated as uh, wisdom and Paramita as transcendent or beyond. So that's the the uh, the Heart Sutra, <clears throat> a kind of nutshell of Buddhism in in, in a very uh, small number of lines. Um, we may get some noise coming through. There's some work being done in the apartment, so I apologize to that if you hear some noise interfering. So a couple of quotes um, to lead us into the talk. Um, this is the quote I gave you before, which I find very helpful. I teach you a path by the middle. It is not a path of annihilation and it is not a path of permanence. That's from the uh, Shakyamuni Buddha. So this is the notion that um, the teaching is not teaching a non-existence, but neither is it teaching permanence. So the, the rug that's being pulled out from underneath us, the, the rug of conventional reality in the Heart Sutra is the notion of there being any permanent entity, any substantive any substantive existence or inherent existence. In other words, there is no thing in the universe. Um, it's not saying we can't have our, our identities. Um, it's just saying that there is no substantive subject that owns the identity. And uh, the, uh, this is one of the walls that the, uh, the sutra is trying to free us from. Um, the wall of, of believing there is a someone in here and a someone out there that has any substantive existence. It's pretty shocking, really. It's basically teaching us that we don't actually exist in the way we think we do. However, once we, we go through the kind of anxiety that that might, prove, might bring up in us, um, there's a great freedom that the, the sutra is inviting us into. And, uh, and that's the freedom to invent ourselves, the freedom to, the freedom to be and to re-enter back into conventional reality. In a way, as a bodhisattva, our mission then becomes to relieve suffering, both of ourselves and others. Another quote um, that I gave you before, by studying our mind, we discover our heart. By freeing our mind, we open our heart. That's from Dzogchen Ponlop. And so basically, it's no coincidence that the main teacher of the Sutra is the Bodhisattva of Compassion, sometimes portrayed in a, in a male form, but often in a female form. And so the, uh, the liberation from the walls of the mind frees us up to uh, our heart to, in, to, to 
to enter into the world with compassion. And finally, another quote, emptiness is a tool to free our mind. So emptiness, we don't really have to get into lengthy contemplations of the philosophical notion of emptiness. But if we can actually understand it enough to see how emptiness is the tool which frees us from suffering, then that's enough. Um, because Buddhism always returns to the pragmatics of ending suffering. And remember, um, the, the core of the teaching is there is no one who suffers. So once we see that there is no one who is suffering, not only does that free ourselves, but it frees all sentient beings. In the realization of the lack of any substantive inherent subject, then there is literally no one who suffers. And that's really hard to get our minds around, but that's the teaching of the Sutra. So in, our, in my last talk, we talked about the middle way between non-existence or nothingness and, and substantiality or permanence, and that Buddhism walks the middle path along, neither falling into either ditch. These are what are referred to in philosophy as ontological questions, questions of being, questions of existence. There is no, Buddhism teaches, there is no thing that inherently exists. But obviously, there's something here, otherwise we wouldn't be here. So it is also not the case that nothing exists. So Buddhism is not, not saying that there's nothing that exists. It's just saying there's no substantive entity which exists. So Red Pine uh, uh, states, emptiness is not nothing. It's everything, everything at once. This is what Avalokiteshvara sees. Realizing emptiness is therefore freeing ourselves from our prison of the mind, releasing the fetters that constrain us. The realization of emptiness frees us to be. This is the joyfulness of the sutra. This is the, the sense in which enlightenment is genuinely enlightening and freeing of the burdens we carry because of the way in which we inevitably and inescapably get caught into the sense of having a self. In the teachings, the kind of realization of emptiness is not something that um, once you've seen it, that's it, that's the end of it, and you'll be enlightened forevermore. Um, in the same way that there's no ent entity that endures throughout time, similarly in our insights or uh, realizations of seeing into emptiness, and are freeing ourselves from emptiness. This is something which we can experience, but then we lose again. It's a continual process of um, hopefully the more we practice, the more available it becomes to us. But it's not a, like a it's not like we're all going to get instantly enlightened this morning and forevermore we will never suffer. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. But 
Even partial insights and partial understandings into emptiness can partially free us from suffering, and that's better than, than nothing. So the focus of today's talk is the, the body zatva path. So zatva, as in body zatva, zatva means being and body means awakened. So a body zatva is an awakened being or, an, or a being that um, aspires to awaken. So the question is, awaken to what? Um, so, I mean, if you read Joko Beck, this is, um, she will say things like, um, well, enlightenment's really the absence of something, or what we're waking up from is the self-centered dream. So enlightenment really is uh, living our lives in a, in, in a more um, life-centered way rather than a self-centered way. In other words, we cut through and see through the delusion of self. So in the first part of the Heart Sutra, Shariputra is asking Avalokiteshvara to teach him Prajnaparamita, teach him this wisdom, which is beyond wisdom. And basically, Avalokiteshvara's teaching is the wisdom of emptiness. Prajna Paramita, apparently, Prajna, the word Prajna, can also be broken down into Pra, P-R-A, meaning before, and Ja, as in Jhana, J-N-A, meaning to know. Therefore, we could say Prajna Paramita is what comes before knowledge. It's the wisdom that comes before knowledge. It's the same question I was asking before is what is it before thought? And uh, in a funny way, of course, the distinction of what is prior to thought is something we make in thought by thinking. In some ways, thinking reveals to us that which cannot be thought or gives us that distinction of something prior to thought. Shunru Suzuki simply referred to it as beginner's mind. So that's a really nice way of simplifying it. The sense of a beginner's mind, a mind that's not full of knowledge. The fact that there is something before thinking is what's often referred to as Descartes' error. So Descartes you know, being the famous 17th century philosopher who said, who doubted and doubted and doubted and realized that the only certain thing he could be certain of was the fact that he was doubting. And hence he concluded, I, I think, uh, therefore, I am. But unfortunately, the mistake of, that Descartes made was he has to be, he didn't see that being comes before thinking. There has to be something that be that's being here before thought can arise in any kind. So this 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 seeing this 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 seeing into this what we might call unconditioned awareness or and the unconditioned or being just being um, is something which people forget about and um, 
and hence we have to be reminded about it. Sometimes we, we actually experience it. As I said, in those moments when we're suddenly struck with the wonder of something. In those moments, we actually experience the kind of the presencing of being and we notice it and we are in, we can be in awe of it. We can be in the wonder of it. Something that children are often available to, which gets drummed out of us through school, etc. And this happened in Buddhism as well. Following the death of the Buddha, the early sects reduced reality to a complex system of knowing, the, uh, a complex system of what they called dharmas, where they broke down reality into its constituent elements. And they said that these can be known. And this is what Avalokiteshvara and Prashnaparamita is offering an alternative to. They're focusing on this wisdom beyond wisdom rather than knowing. And uh, the ultimate reality, which was constructed in the Abhidharma teachings, um, which basically set forth what we normally think of as a Buddhism. In other words, there's no self. Um, there's the five skandhas, the five conditions that we how we experience being alive and, and everything is being impermanent. Um, but they actually still believe there was a, a, a permanent element of reality, which all of reality could be reduced to. So Avalokiteshvara negates all of that in the first, the second part of the uh, Heart Sutra. So the body is empty and the mind that is feelings that is um, sensations and our evaluation of sensations, conceptions, stories, reactions, and discernment are all empty. In the Prashnaparamita teachings, you can't find anybody who is born or who dies. Once we understand the skandhas of our experience, um, the, um, to be empty of, of any substantive uh, entity then what does suffering have to rest upon it, it really pulls the rug out from under suffering as well so let's move to the third part of the sutra which is what i wanted to focus on we introduce to the practice of the bodhisattva who takes refuge in prashnaparamita so this is like we talked a few weeks ago, we talked about taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. This is kind of like taking refuge in the Dharma, either taking refuge in reality as it is, or taking refuge into seeing the emptiness, realizing the emptiness of all things. So the third part is, therefore, Shariputra, with, without attainment, because there's no one to attain anything, Bodhisattvas take refuge in Prajnaparamita and live without walls of the mind. And very key point here, without walls of the mind and thus without fear. They see through delusions and finally Nirvana. That's the delusions of, 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 of self and uh, also the delusion of someone who attains Nirvana. There is no one 
who gets enlightened. There is no one who reaches in enlightenment or nirvana because there is no one there in the first place. Um, so all Buddhas, past, present, future, also take refuge in Prajnaparamita and realize unexcelled perfect enlightenment. That is, they realize the enlightenment that's already been there right from the beginning. So the refuge of Prajnaparamita is a refuge without walls. So of course, walls are a nice metaphor. Seeing emptiness, we are freed from the prison cell of the walls of our minds. So like in your own experience, you can really, really play with this and really see all the different sort of walls that constrain or restrain you. It might be different to the walls that constrain me, uh, but we all have our different versions of walls that we find limiting and generate fear. Through the realization of emptiness, we free ourselves from our captivity. Let's summarize it as the self-centered dream. And as the Bodhisattva, we embrace serving life. The path of the Bodhisattva is being of service, of serving life. So the Heart Sutra is a beautiful invitation to us to live without walls, to live without the divisions that divide us, the divisions that exist within us and the divisions that exist without us. Whether they're, they're the walls that divide countries or the walls that divide parts of the self from other parts of the self. It tells us, the sutra tells us there are no actual things in the universe. It's only process. We suffer when we take ourselves and others to be things. This is the key. And this is very difficult to free ourselves from because it's so conditioned within us to experience ourselves as a self or as a subject or as an, of, or some kind of inherent reality. Um, and uh, the same, and we project that onto others. And that's, that's how suffering arises according to the teachings of Mahayana Buddhism. In Mahayana Buddhism, in the teachings of the Heart Sutra, there are no nouns in the universe. There are only verbs. However, in the conventional world in which we live, we find ourselves getting inexorably pulled back into the language of things and nouns and identification as a noun. So the, uh, the Sanskrit word shanyata has been translated as emptiness. It's also been translated as boundlessness. So boundless implying no divisions, no boundaries, no frontiers. I'm also going to play around with this today as well and suggest um, a slightly different interpretation. We could also say form is happening and happening is form to get across this notion of process that the universe is a verb and not a noun. We ourselves are a happening. We are coming and going in and out of being moment by moment. We could even describe that as a process of selfing or eventing. 
in terms of how we experience emptiness. While it is freeing, and the Sutra offers us this invitation that seeing emptiness will free us, will enlighten us, will be joyful. But just prior to, I guess, the great death that Zen Buddhism often talks about, the great death of the self, uh, the great death of the illusion of the self. Um, often we experience the great doubt. This doubt, this great doubt that Zen Buddhism talks about could also be perhaps interpreted as the deep ontological anxiety, the deep anxiety of death or nothingness. Whereas the, uh, the Sutra is inviting us into move through that into the into the into the freedom that it's that's offered if we free ourselves from what constrains us so but what often holds us back is the fear of nothingness the fear that being being no one being nobody that's not that's pretty challenging that's pretty confronting the sense of the deep abyss that we could fall into um, This is something we may have experienced at different times in our lives. And it can be uh, deeply disturbing sometimes. So a, a, a fear can arise, fears can arise. But if we see things as, there are, as they are, as it is, as uh, Shunru Suzuki should say, and the fear of death can dissolve completely once we are no longer identified with the thought. Once the walls in which we have surrounded ourselves are gone, we see or experience the indivisibility of things. We see the light. That's a, another quote from Red Pine. It's quite beautiful. I'll just read it again. Once the walls with which we have surrounded ourselves are gone, we see the indivisibility of things. We see the light. In other words, there are no things. We're just light. And the world arises within that light, appears within that light as beings. But to come back to the notion of uh, going beyond our fears, it's quite interesting in the... Uh, in the uh, Buddhist teachings about the Bodhisattva path, they identify five basic fears that Bodhisattvas have to go through. We could identify lots of fears. We all have our own unique fears. But this is, I'm just, these are quite curious, the ones that are identified in the tradition. I'll just read them to you. So these are the, fear, the, five, the five fears that are highlighted in the tradition that are said to concern Bodhisattvas new to the path like all of us the first one it talks about is the fear of survival um, basically that we will not be able to survive financially if we embrace generosity so in all the teachings of the uh the bodies out the path and the precepts are really about uh letting uh embracing generosity and uh and so um I guess to live one's life with, without um, um, 
from the perspective of this traditional teaching, uh, I could see that could be something that can come up. But let, let's try and make it more contemporary. And uh, for us in, in, in today's time and place, uh, and as, as lay practitioners, um, as you know, as my teacher Barry Majid's always said, he's not. We're not suggesting that everybody has to give away all their money, all their possessions, uh, and come and join the sangha. Um, it's important that we are we are able to look after ourselves as best we can. Uh, but it's it's certainly the case, though. I think you'll find both in, in I found it in my life. You'll find it in your life. A lot of our anxiety and fears do hinge on along about uh, finances, some more severe than others. Um, I have met people like with a million dollars in the bank who are incredibly f insecure and anxious about the finances every day. I've met people with nothing in the bank who have no anxiety about their finances at all. So it's all kind of relative. But, you know, all of us, it's a fairly universal fear. Um, having no money. So we can all relate to that one. So that's one of the fears that Body Zap has come up against. Another one that the second one, again, which we can all relate to is the fear of criticism. And um, so as soon as we put ourselves out there, and we start to engage in conversations around the Dharma, for example, um, and uh, and, and from this bodhisattva point of view, um, we become vulnerable to feeling criticized in the same way that we've all experienced that from the get-go, whether it's been through our schooling system, our family of origin, um, our day-to-day -day working life, um, where we can all, we've all at various times experienced criticism. And also, haven't we, many of us, would relate to the inner critic so and, and the the um the kind of damage that the inner critic can do which is a really good example of one of the constraining walls of the mind that emptiness wants to free us from wants to free us from if you like the the inner critic as well as the fear of criticism from others so how we hold ourselves back from the fear of being criticized the third uh, bodhisattva fear, again, we, we can all relate to the fear of death. Um, it's interesting. I mean, many many people um, um, don't necessarily own up to a fear of death. Um, for some people, it's more about the process of dying itself, and the uh, we don't want to die alone. We don't want to die. Um, um, in pain um, and uh, and so on. Uh, a lot of people have fears about the process of dying. Um, how we how we as a body zatva come to embrace and uh, death and uh, how we can befriend death. I've spoken about before, and how um, ultimately death can is is one of the ways in which grants us the possibility to step into our lives with 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 commitment and with wanting to make a difference in the world and uh, rather than uh, having death overwhelm us um, death can add to our appreciation of the 
of the gift that we have in this moment to appreciate this wonder of just being alive. The fourth fear, the fear of living in circumstances that are not supportive of Dharma practice. Well, maybe we're not, maybe not many of us are afraid of that, but, um, but that could be something again, just comes back to, um, I guess we could relate to that through poverty. Um, as we talked about last fortnight, um, of, of, um, or not too long ago, you know, the, the notion of refugees and uh, the notion of how so many, so many, so many of us are living in abject poverty and how poverty itself is violence and um, how we, we do require our basic needs to be met in terms of food and, and clothing and shelter before we can really practice the Dharma. And that is, I guess, something that we take responsibility for, not for uh, just ourselves, but as bodhisattvas, we take that up as uh, something we stand for. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure all of us here would be take a stand for the elimination of poverty throughout the world. And finally, the last fear um, that's mentioned is the, <laughs> the fear of speaking before an assembly. So that um, as bodhisattvas, if we're speaking the Dharma to an assembly, how we in, uh, inevitably will come across performance anxiety and, and you know, we'll be worried about embarrassing ourselves or failing to teach others. And, um, and we've all experienced uh, in diff to different degrees, the fear of public speaking. So these are just five fears that we, uh, that we experience and, and uh, face up to as body as bodhisattvas. So finally, the bodhisattvas uh, also see through, you know, all delusions of self and other, of, of duality, including the delusion that there is someone um, who is enlightened or there is someone who discovers nirvana. In other words, nirvana and enlightenment are always right here now in the midst of the ups and downs of life. It's not that uh, seeing into the emptiness can help to alleviate us getting dramatically caught up in the ups and downs of life, but they're not gonna stop our thoughts from coming. They're not, it's not gonna stop our moods from changing. It's not gonna be, you know, not necessarily gonna be happy every day, but seeing through the ups and downs through the practice of seeing into the emptiness of all things will certainly go a long way to reducing the possibility of ways in which we might act to hurt ourselves or hurt others. So emptiness in a way is like um, more so than death. Emptiness, if we hold emptiness and seeing into the emptiness and reminding ourselves of the emptiness of all things, it's much more likely to help us to be in the world in a way where we're not caught up and dragged into anger and, and various other harmful ways of being. So, um, I'm going to stop there. I've talked for long enough. Um, and open it up to uh, 
anybody who would like to ask me a question or anybody who would like to share um, their own experience of what emptiness might mean to you. Um, and uh, so just remember to unmute yourselves just to indicate if you want to ask a question or share something. Is that uh, David? Did you want to unmute yourself? Yes. Uh, um, yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, I just wanted to come back to a point that somehow stuck in my mind. It's probably kind of trivial in a way, but just to, um, I guess, bring myself into the present. Um, you talked about Descartes, which I hadn't really heard before that, that um, summary of his philosophy, I think, therefore I am, is, is coming from him actually sort of uh, noticing his doubt or, or um, the existence of that doubt as, as kind of almost proving his existence rather than just thought. I thought that was interesting. And then I noticed that you said Descartes mistake is that being becomes the forethought. And I, I, I just want no, 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 the, the reverse of that. Oh. Descartes mistake was not to notice being. Yes. That being becomes before thought. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I just hear it. I, I guess in English we say it, I think therefore I am, but, to me, it's I hear him saying, or that meaning that oh, I'm thinking that's evidence of some kind of existence, not that thinking causes existence. So I just sort of felt like, oh, actually, I, I hear some kind of um, synthesis or harmony with with um, what you were talking about and I guess what the Heart Sutra talks about. So that was maybe a point of difference for me, but it was it was a point with with how you expressed it, but it was it was actually a really useful way of thinking, oh well, maybe different people have have come to the same conclusion in different ways and expressed it in slightly different ways. Well, it's interesting. Um, I guess we'd have to go back to the, the original sources of Descartes, which, um, but um, if he did take the fact that he was thinking as a, he didn't say, um, for example, um, uh, I am, therefore I think. He said, I think, therefore I am. Um, but I mean, he simply seemed to create a whole lot of duality from um, the notion of cognition then as being something which was then yeah. separated from the world in some way, whereas from this point of view, it's the world which comes into being 
before thought, which is mm. what what it, um, which is the wonder and the mystery, not so much that we think. But well, maybe in that moment. But, but but let me just but in, in but in a sense, like you say, um, it requires thinking to make that distinction. So we could not make that distinction unless we have the ability to think. So that distinction would not arise to a non-thinking being. Mm. So that's a good point. And I was thinking about that earlier on as well. I've probably said enough. Thank you. Um, if I may just offer um, a, just a different interpretation of that particular saying, because I've heard it being criticized, you know, the, I think therefore I am. It's like he didn't acknowledge the what, yeah, the whole being behind, you know, behind thinking. But I actually look at it as he really expressed it accurately and true in the sense that the I is a house of thoughts. So I think, therefore, I create a self, a small self that we I believe that I am. So I think, therefore, I am. I think, therefore, I create a sense of self, which is the whole, you know prison of thought and in a way he kind of captured that and I've never heard anyone kind of point that out that he was just speaking from that very direct experience of a human believing in his self I think therefore I am you know just an offering I thought yeah well that's nice Pavel I mean um um certainly the the uh the thinking process generates the sense of a self that's thinking. Um, but my understanding is that um, uh, Descartes didn't, you know, didn't see that. Um, that the he didn't. He, he took the self that thinking created to be a reality. Uh, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I kind of think he maybe expressed something accurate, but he didn't realize in what, what way it's accurate. He kind of thought it's <laughs> kind of talking about something fundamental. And yet he was talking about, uh, to me anyway, I like, I like to hear it in the sense that he was expressing that dilemma of selfhood, you know, that is basically created by thought. But that I don't think that's actually what he was, um, he realized that that's what he was talking about. But when I look at it, um, that, that kind of rings more true and holds true in the sense of, you know, we think and we believe in what we think and therefore we think we are a self. I am, therefore I yeah. am. And from the, from the Mahayana teachings, we would say that that's, um, you know, relatively true. We, we exist relative to that. That's the conventional reality that we live in. Um, um, but unfortunately, we take that to be absolute in many ways. We don't see into the nature of the fact that uh, um, the, the conventional world is a world that we've created and, uh, and hence we can, you know, uh, uncreate in different ways. Um, but it's very hard when it becomes institutionalized. And um, so the, um, from the Mahayana point of view, the conventional reality doesn't inherently exist. Um, it's an illusion, and um, whereas Descartes was wanting to find some foundation and some certainty, and he took the I think, therefore I am, as the foundation 
for his philosophy, whereas from the Mahayana point of view, there is no foundation. May I? Gareth. I really like um, Maharaj's Nisargadatta. And as a, a twist on Descartes, I'm not this, I'm not that, is what he, Maharaj says. We fall into the trap of suffering by thinking, I am this, I'm that. And his process through his guru was to keep saying, I'm not this, I'm not that. And then something else arises within that's not trapped in the dream of thinking I am this and I am that. I really, I think it's what you, you're already saying this and the, um, the practice principles already say it too. Um, yes, um, he was um, he was one of uh, Joko's um, favorite teachers. Yeah, so that kind of um, I am not this, I am not that is is quite in the ballpark in terms of the Heart Sutra. Yeah. Hmm. But I know I'm always observing myself being trapped in I'm this and I'm that. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult to sustain and maintain it, but you inevitably mm. get pulled back into it. It's mm. got a very strong pull. Uh, Elizabeth? Um, it helps me to, to understand the sense of emptiness. If I try and imagine that light and air can pass right through me, that I'm permeable, that I'm permeable, that um, I'm not a solid um, being, it helps me to give that sense of emptiness. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yes, lovely, yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, Richard. Uh, thanks, Andrew and uh, Elizabeth and everyone. It's been really a uh, fantastic talk, Andrew. I enjoyed that. Um, I just wanted to reflect, reflect a little bit on, on my, well, uh, emptiness and my own uh, experience of emptiness, particularly with the, um, in, during the last 18 months of the pandemic, you know, down here in, in lockdown um, for many months. And um, that uh, sense of, as you mentioned so clearly, the sense of emptiness being absolutely terrifying and having a sense of um, uh, the sort of palpable sense of emptiness within and without and being uh, having these feelings of, um, you know, extreme loneliness, uh, anxiety, uh, alienation, um, uh, kind of existential, em existential emptiness and the, the sense of um, how overwhelming and terrifying that can be as a, and, and sort of um, feeding into this sense of a separate self, um, which is paradoxically uh, the opposite of the emptiness that's in the Heart Sutra. Um, yeah, I know. I mean, is it, what is it, 12 million Australians are forced into um, week, uh, quite a few weeks of a silent retreat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and and even the uh, you know where I live in Melbourne, I live on my own, and the the during a lot of the lockdowns, there's total silence. You know, you you just don't. There's no sounds at all outside. Um, maybe the weather, or you might hear some birds or something. But that general, um, you know, I think, and this has been a lot of people's experience of of being, uh, you know, feeling really disconnected from other people, um, and that. That sense of emptiness is, uh, you know, it's it's very scary, and uh, it's interesting because it, I, I think that it sort of it's a psychological state that tends to feed on itself, and um, I think also a lot of the the fears that you mentioned, you know, that the um, the fear of vulnerability that people maybe have in reaching out to kind of look for help when they're in those states of isolation. Um, is, uh, you know, not wanting to feel vulnerable, um, not wanting to reach out, not, not wanting to speak because you may be, it's the fear of, you know, rejection and abandonment for yourself um, being seen in the light of other selves. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's, th these, are, these are the senses of emptiness of a, of a separate, you know, individual self. They're not, the sense of emptiness that you're of liberation, but it's interesting that maybe there's maybe they're close. I don't know. Well, I think that's why I refer back to the um, the metaphor of the great doubt, which is um, it'll come across in the Zen Buddhist literature, often in the context of koan practice, but it doesn't have to be understood just in the context of koan practice. Um, we could actually take this notion of the great doubt or the, the, the existential anxiety around nothingness or death as being something that is at the, the core of every, what it means to be a human being. And the way in which we deal with that um, is often what um, some people have referred to as the difference between living an authentic life and living an inauthentic life. So in many ways, as I say to many of my clients, anxiety is part of what it means to be a human being. Uh, and then it just manifests in different levels of severity, depending upon the personal history of that person. But no human being can escape anxiety. Mm. Pingala. Mm. I'm, I live in a, in a fairly isolated situation, just reflecting on what you're saying, Richard. And at the moment, I've, you know, I've had various times of self-isolation because of COVID, which is happening now, partly because of my, uh, my health situation and the need not to be infected. But... Um, Lately, I live in a very natural environment. Lately, I've been relating in that manner as, a, as an answer to that those sense of separateness and um, what comes up is to relate to my environment and see and look for the soul in, um, and feel the soul lately, the feel, feel the soul in what is around me, what's in the trees, what's in the creatures that I live with, or my little clan of chooks. <laughs> um, 
and that that offers a lot more connection and I, I'm finding that that becomes deeper with practice um, yeah which is quite a, a rare opportunity in a sense <laughs> it, on the in a positive way I mean it's it is very challenging we've been put through a lot of challenges yeah yeah, I think that's a beautiful teaching, Pingala. Um, um, again, it, uh, uh, the way in which you describe that is, to me, is is returning to being. It's um, an appreciation of your locality, the the beings that live in your locality, and the sense in which you can have that sense of connection and wonder where you live, um, and mm. that's often something that um gets lost and uh we lose in in our in our in our in our, in our culture especially with the you know the dominance of various forms of technology and um so coming that coming back to the appreciation of local environments um very important yeah thank you and also the feeling of belonging in the yeah. environment that's really special yeah, 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 yeah. Being in the world and belonging, having that sense of dwelling where you live, or dwelling in the world in 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 that way. Yeah, yeah. And and I find there's various practices that that encourage these things. So that's something I've been focusing on in a sort of loose and movable way. So, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Something Thank you. to share. Yeah. It doesn't make it not still, there's still challenges, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 